Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Today on the show, I welcome Raghu Marcus to discuss the life and legacy of the spiritualist and author Ram Das. Raghu is on the board of directors for the Love Serve Remember Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to preserving and continuing the teachings of Ram Das and his guru, Neem Karoli Baba. In 2016, Raghu co-founded the Be Here Now Network, where he hosts the Ram Das Here and Now podcast, as well as his own mind-rolling podcast. He is also the producer of Becoming Nobody, a fantastic Ram Das documentary feature film that was released in 2019. Now, when Ram Das first went to India in 1967, he was still Dr. Richard Alpert a prominent Harvard psychologist and psychedelic pioneer with fellow doctor and mind-alterer Timothy Leary. Now, in India, he met his guru, Neem Karoli Baba, who introduced Albert to Bhakti Yoga, also known as devotional yoga, and gave Albert his Hindu name Ram Das, which means servant of God. Now, this trip was an inflection point for Ram Das, who began to practice bhakti, a single-pointedness of mind focused on devotional love. Now, through meditation, Ram Das began to cultivate his higher self, an awareness beyond ego and conscious attention, a state of integrated or love consciousness known as samadhi. Upon returning to the United States, Das published his seminal work, Be Here Now, in 1971, which subsequently became the definitive Western book on spirituality, yoga, and meditation for the hippie generation. In this episode, Raghu shares a constellation of stories that revolve around Ram Dass's life and work, from his early days as a psychotherapist, to his adventures in psychedelia, to his captivating spiritual oratory. Now, Meditation can be difficult for many people. Ram Dass said, the quieter you become, the more you can hear. So if you are seeking that level of deep inner listening, well, then I invite you to join a new 10-day meditation series with Ram Dass and other wonderful meditation teachers, including Jack Kornfield, Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein, and others called Pause, Breathe, Be Here Now. A commune is thrilled to host this event in partnership with the Be Here Now Network and Love Serve Remember Foundation. Now just go to onecommune.com slash be here now. That's O-N-E commune.com slash be here now to register and join tens of thousands of people around the world for this collective daily meditation experience. I really hope you'll join us. And please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcatcher. Okay, without further delay, I present to you Raghu Marcus on Ram Das. Okay, Raghu Marcus, great to be with you. What a treat. Welcome to the Commune Podcast. Uh, thank you, Jeff Krasno, and great to have met you uh, a number of months ago, and uh, 
just you know finding brothers all over the place as as we travel around the world is hall, always been a hallmark of my uh, life's joy really and yeah. just yeah just uh, and that's why podcasts are so great right you get to meet people you don't know you get to know them and suddenly wow especially during the pandemic suddenly you got a friend and that's uh, a lovely thing yeah, well, I could extol the virtues of podcast, uh, even just to justify my own existence. But um, <laughs> but one of the byproducts of it is is literally being here now, um, because when I'm in this kind of uh, repartee, uh, I've I've no choice. I'm all here. I'm all yours. Mm, I'm, yeah. I'm with you one hundred percent, and uh, and that is a great. Um, luxury to be honest uh given the attention economy that vies for your awareness absolutely. moment to moment yeah, absolutely <laughs> so it's uh i would say podcasting is a form of of self-preservation for <laughs> my, my my attention span <laughs> yeah that's a good way to put it i like it well i'm excited to explore uh the life and times of the great Ram Das with you um, in our conversation, um, and very very thrilled for our impending uh, collaboration to bring his teachings and and the teachings of others under the aegis of of the Be Here Now Network, um, and brings these teachings and guided meditations to the world together. Mm -hmm. So thank you for your for your uh, flexibility and your enthusiasm there. Yeah, no, I right with you there i mean i'm uh, looking forward big time to sharing uh, these not just from ram das but some of our other friends jack cornfield included and and others sharon so yeah this yeah. would be a, a very fun thing yeah so we share numerous passions and life experiences so i, I know that we're both um what i might call spiritual refugees of the music industry yeah. uh, and i believe we were both radio djs so i was mm -hmm. at uh wkcr in new york city that was the columbia university radio station mm. for a good stint and i know you were in montreal yeah. and i believe it was under the auspices of your role as a dj and program director there that you first were introduced to rob das so can exactly. you talk a little bit about that absolutely yeah well that was a demarcation point for me yeah. in my life obviously and for many 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 people in fact we there's such a a through line for everybody about what happened when you first heard rob das or you met him or whatever yeah uh, but they, uh, the front desk called me and said, oh, there's some people who want to talk to you there's, uh, uh, about uh, promoting a, a, a lecture, a talk. I said, okay. So they called in and said, uh, yeah, Ramdas is speaking at McGill University, which is like the Harvard of Canada, pretty much. And I said, okay, except Ramdas. <laughs> What's that? Who's yeah. that? And then they immediately said, well, you know, Tim Leary and Richard Alpert. I went, oh, shit. Oh, of course. Absolutely. 100%. Love them guys. 
And but I said you must have a tape or something from a previous talk that he gave, so at least I have an idea of what you know what we're talking about here. And so they sent one over to the station. I went into a studio. I put it on, and demarcation point. Okay, mm. wow, this is what I've been kind of thinking about, but couldn't put into words and feeling that it's okay. We are not what the society and parents and family and teachers have told us we are mind ego believe your thoughts believe your story improve yourself and get ahead and become a somebody mm -hmm. and that was just extraordinarily relieving in the moment and then i said okay where where is this? i actually you know what i did i put it on the air in the <laughs> middle of the day during uh, some point in the week Nobody had ever heard anything like this at that point, most especially. And the switchboard just lit up. People were mm. like, holy shit, what is this? And I, for my part, went, okay, I got to meet this guy. And so they arranged that meeting, and that was, yeah. that got me um, my first <laughs> yeah. real experience of, okay, you, and it's funny because you just said, you know, through the podcast, you give complete attention. If we are forced into this complete attention, right, which is a beautiful thing, that happened naturally when Ramdas did that really to me. He, I mean, he didn't do anything. He just, how can, what can I do for you without saying a word? Just created a space of, uh, uh, it, nothing to do with Richard and nothing to do with Ramdas. It only to do with me and, and what the universe needed to present to me in that moment. So that kind of un unconditionality and uh, presence, that got me to India. Mm. Amazing. Mm. Yeah, he had a way about him. Um, and it was certainly the message uh, the message as vesseled by the words, but it was also a presence to him that almost created a form of uh, uh, drishti or one-pointedness of mind. You know, when you're listening to him, it's almost the sounds mm. at, that are as captivating as the words themselves. There is just a presence to his delivery that really brought you into this one pointedness it's it is it's unique you know not everybody has it i mean alan yeah. watts does it for me too but yeah man, yeah and he had you know, it yeah, yeah in fact he had it. how many of us especially coming up in the 60s 70s and 80s even it's alan watts and ramdas is your yeah. first entry point Be and what you're saying is so absolutely true and we know it even more readily from being around music and having that as part of our vocation, how powerful sound is. And, you know, the, there's Tibetan Buddhists, uh, monks, that use a, a, a sound directive that is a city of some sort, able to stop people in their tracks or, or completely change an emotion over. I mean, it's, it's definitely a thing, for sure. Hmm. Yeah, it's funny that you bring up the parallel with music. Um, and clearly one of the best ways to begin meditating is just to shut up and listen for a moment. But um, but there are all these 
I wouldn't call them gimmicks, but like tricks in some ways to help us find that single pointedness, you know, whether you're using Tibetan bowls or mantra um, or or just as I'm sure you've experienced thousands of times. I think one of the reasons why so many of us in the music industry end up making this a slight taking this off ramp is um, is because we know the experience of connecting with the foundational reality of something and not the symbol of it. And that's what music can so often be. It is just dong. It is the thing. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's not it's the original a word vibe. that we've given it. Yeah. The original vibration. Um, uh, Krishna says something that um, says it very directly and simply. Because what he does, and for those of you who don't know, he's one of the foremost uh, kirtan or chant uh, uh, singers in, in in this side of the world and in India, he's now being asked to go to India. He's like <laughs> bring in, you know, bring it back from America. Uh, but he would say, uh, so these are mantras that take us into that one point and and beyond into the connection to the intuitive reality, which is the love or whatever we want to call it, and uh, the music. And especially what, with what he's doing, because you know he grew up as a Westerner and he was in a rock and roll band, and so chord changes are very familiar, you know, mm -hmm. to people. And it's the music that uh, it it's the um, the mantra rides on top of it, and basically the medicine goes down a hell of a lot easier <laughs> with yeah. that music. Yeah, yeah, I I got the opportunity to develop a bit of a relationship with Herbie Hancock. Mm. And um, mm -hmm. I was on tour with him here and there for a summer. And uh, and he is a Buddhist. Um, I think he's a Nichiren. Um, yes, yes, he is. And, yeah. and he would have a ritual before going on stage every night. And he would chant the Nam Yoho Renge Kyo. Now, mm -hmm. I had never heard mantra before, uh, mm -hmm. but I was pretty into Herbie Hancock, and there I was as a pretty young man being in his backstage, and then mm -hmm. he would have sort of an inner sanctum, kind of the backstage behind the oh, backstage, yeah. where he would then gather for about 10 minutes before showtime, and he would invite anyone that was interested uh, to chant with him. But you'd have to stay the whole time. You couldn't, you know, pop in and out. And uh, I remember we were at Carnegie Hall, actually, and uh, they run a tight union ship at mm, Carnegie Hall. Mm, mm, and mm. he was in the back uh, chanting. And um, you could tell that there was a little uneasiness because he was supposed to hit the stage right at eight. And here it was it was 8.01 and he was still chanting mm. <laughs> in the back. But um but even I can't really remember what the the literal Sanskrit um, translation is to Nam Yoho Renge Kyo, something about the lotus flower, something. But you actually yeah. don't really connect with the meaning of the words anymore. It's actually just bringing you in to the present through sound, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, they yeah. all have a very particular vibration. 
that mm. take, I mean, like Indian music, for instance, all the ragas, they all have some relationship to a time of day, to a mood, to a spiritual expression. So, yeah, I mean, that's mm. why, you know, of course, the these people in the East are so highly developed. <laughs> I mean, yeah. look at the Tibetans yeah. and w- w- that uh, extraordinary philosophy that... I mean, I particularly am enamored with it because it just sings to me in terms of, okay, this makes sense. This, uh, their um, perspective of reality and the truth. And yeah, the the Indians have definitely developed that over, obviously, thousands of years. Yeah. So can you timestamp that experience that you had meeting Ram Dass and and discovering that you didn't have to wear the spacesuit all the time. You want me to time stamp? Well, just more or less, give me a give me a <laughs> year. Yeah, I always well, it's sixty nine seventies when I met him. Okay, yeah. so In he was so he was post um, kind of psychedelia at that juncture. Well, or, or he, maybe what he yeah. did was he okay so just a fast track thing on what happened with him. And people do yeah. know that he was thrown out of Harvard, he and Leary, for uh, the experimentation, with dr- which is now happening big time with yeah. ethnogens. Uh, yeah. And um, so, yeah, it was really a kind of an uptight situation. Anyhow, but for him, I mean, they did things like, I, I was really fortunate Jeff, because I ended up in this place, Kosani. It was just me and Krishnas and a couple other people in Ramdas. We were waiting for a, a Buddhist meditation teacher to come and teach meditation. He ended up not being able to come, and where ensued, we were doing a self-directed thing. Ramdas being more or less the teacher, and um, it was just uh, extraordinary because at night he would regale us with stories of that those days at Millbrook and so on and Harvard and one thing they did for instance let's go into a room a small room just well Leary and Alpert and um, a couple of the other uh, people that were around we're not going to leave the room for seven days we are going to take with us as much psychedelics as you could hold in a suitcase and we're just going to ingest. Mm-hmm. They did this for a week. Who would do this? This is kind of psychonaut from like what? And uh, and Ramdas, so he would regale us with these stories. So it was really you know quite unbelievable. But the thing is that he realized at that point, I keep coming down. They right. keep coming down. I mean, it it gives a beautiful glimpse, seems to, but keep coming down. And he said, so he met up with his David Padua, a friend of his who was going to, you know, off to India and then Japan. And they were just going to do this tour and they were into Buddhism, basically. And uh, the rest is, is, of course, history. But what Ramdas was looking for was to find that map of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And that's why he went and he left, uh, he didn't, he never really left psychedelics behind. Obviously later in his life, he, maybe occasionally he would do some mushrooms or something. Uh, but, uh, he 
then, of course, met Neem Karoli Baba and realized what that map was. And then he came back and translated that map to young Westerners like ourselves, myself. And uh, that was the point at which I met him. He had been doing that for a couple of years. And I met him at that point, actually, and it was maybe from the point I met him to him going back to India, which is why, oh, you're going to India again? Okay, I got to go there. Well, I can't tell you. He says, I can't tell you the name of the person or where he is. I said, I don't care. I'm coming. <laughs> and Krishnadas, of course, did went further and really forced them to give him a name of somebody in a, in a town nearby, you know. And they and they uh, ended up going a few months earlier than I did. And so that w- when he came back, those those talks are extraordinary talks, mm-hmm. yeah. you know. And those are the first talks that we started the Be Here Now Network with. Uh, Ramdas be here now network and was those talks and I introduced them and I told pretty much this story that I'm relating right now I really encourage all listeners if they want to go on a deep dive to go and, and visit the the here and now podcast because i've been actually spending a bunch of time in there um it's yeah it's so much fun um and 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 downloading many of the the early stories of Mm. um and and the early lectures which are fascinating and 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 he ramdas has a certain awareness of his own story and his own journey that he tells um which is wonderful, and of course he does it in in such an eloquent, poetic way. But you know, it, it it to listen to his story does really um, bring it into sort of a real stark relief because he was <clears throat> he was on the path to being essentially a, a very, very highly respected, tenured. Harvard professor, essentially. I mean, and he could have very easily stayed um, on that path. I mean, he had gotten his uh, his PhD from Stanford in psychology, which I know that because my dad also got a PhD in Stanford, oh, really? uh, uh, in yeah. psychology. Um, they mm. weren't there quite at the same time, but mm. pretty close. Um, and uh, and yeah, at that point, him being Richard Alpert, he was really fast tracking to a, a very illustrious place in academia. Um, and he certainly was enjoying some of the spoils of that. And I think he mentioned he had a Cessna. Yeah, he had a he Cessna and a Harley. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he quickly grew tired of both of them, it sounded like. Well, uh, yeah. it's hard, you know, when you fly the Cessna by yourself on acid, it, it can be a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering, actually, when I heard that, if that had ever happened. Yep. Or if you, oh, man. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Um, and, and then, you know, and, and, you know, you and I assume that a lot of people know these stories, but, but certainly not everybody does, you know, at mm. Harvard, uh, I think Harvard had also kind of in that early sixties recruited, um, Timothy Leary mm-hmm. and, um, and that's where they met and, um, and, uh, began a lot of the psychedelic escapades that I think really kind of bent that first chapter 
of his life. And you, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, it wasn't just psilocybin, but it was also peyote and DMT and LSD and all of the requisites. But, you know, it's interesting, particularly as things have come full circle around psychedelics and there's a lot of debate around it now. Um, but to what degree do you feel that psychedelics were essential to his journey and potentially yours, mm. even though they might not have represented the ultimate answer? Yeah. Well, Ramdas himself said this, and I would have seconded it, said it myself. I, I think we all, there, there was only a couple of hundred Westerners that actually made it over to India, two, three hundred tops. If you can think of what that relates to, you know, these hmm. incredible beings that, you know, that we know of these days. So thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of acolytes and so on. Um, but we... Um, he said, I wouldn't have gotten Neem Karoli Baba. I wouldn't have gotten it without psychedelics. Mm. And now, did everyone and their mother take acid before they went to India? Probably not. A greater proportion? Yeah. Yeah, I would say a great proportion. And uh, yeah, it made uh, that experience. Well, it's, it's like experiencing a thing, not someone like we're relating back and forth. There was no us and them with this being, and it was so odd and so uh, counterintuitive to what we had been, the way that we had been brought up, the devotion to the rational mind and, mm. and you know, the exchange that we, that we have with everybody. You know, it's conditional. And to actually, oh my God, this is not happening at all. So the idea that with psychedelics, and by the way, Ramdas throughout his life, I mean, from the very beginning, you know, uh, we just, uh, uh, I'm, from the very beginning, he would say it's about set and setting mm. and respect, you know, just... Um, having the correct preparation, which is what they're doing now with the psychedelic therapy. They're yeah. following that road, basically. And so he, he was insistent on that. When anybody would ask him, Ramdas, do you think it'd be good for me to do some mushrooms or something? And he would go right to that place of respect and, and, and making sure that uh, you really plan this and set and setting, meaning you know, who and what you're, who you're with and what music you play and, you know, and, and uh, supremely important. And so he would say that all the way through. Um, but the, in the, that... The, Ce the, Cessna, the Cessna notwithstanding. The Cessna notwithstanding, <laughs> oh yeah. People listen to, you know, like if I, Oh God, yes. Um, well, and, and all through his life, so... You, you just said, well, he was at Harvard. He had everything. I mean, he was an esteemed professor. I mean, he, you know, he was really uh, thriving. Why did he, you know, do what he did and, and to the uh, disadvantage of his career, so, so to speak? Well, he did it because he had no, he was so adventurous. Yeah. 
and so curious. Curious is probably the best word. And once he got introduced to uh, ethnogens and mushrooms in the beginning, so he had the idea, okay, there is something that is absolutely beyond our rational, uh, the way that we think, the story we believe, the thoughts that we believe. Uh, there is something beyond that. So once that happened, it didn't matter. Harvard, no Harvard, he wanted to get at the truth. And he had such a, you know, this is one being that had a deep, deep commitment to getting at that truth. And then alongside of that, Jeff, it was a commitment to share it. That's the greatest yeah. uh, aspect of Ramdas, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, I think curious is is the word. I mean, certainly he was well-versed enough in Freudian psychology and cognitive behavior, mm. behavioral therapy and, and all of the different kinds of therapies. But in the end, he felt that these fell short to really, truly explain the human condition and, and the human experience. And so it was this, this journey and... Um, and uh, yeah, I think, you know, just to, to speak to my own experience with psychedelics, which certainly isn't, uh, I can't hold a candle to, to Ram Dass. <laughs> I think he mentioned uh, that he tripped maybe 300 times or so. Um, but even, uh, but that might be a, a, an Under understatement of the year. <laughs> um, but, you know, even in my own experiences, um, to glimpse the possibility of experiencing consciousness not as a separate self or as yeah. an ego self yeah. or all of the different labels that one gives oneself in relation to society, mm. culture, etc. To have a, a different experience of yourself or of consciousness not as a separate self, but as a, a feeling, a sensation of being completely integrated into the web of the universe. I yeah. mean, and so yeah. to taste that, even if you just taste it for a moment and you come back down, it sparks something. Yeah, and, uh, exactly, yeah. exactly. And the problem that can ensue is it's, a, it's an incredible experience. And you want that one experience over and right. over and then you know people uh, around ayahuasca particularly you know they feel like things get revealed on successive journeys and so which i'm sure is true but there also is a truth around the uh, inevitability of attachment to the experience and that creates other issues absolutely and you can also say that that is true for meditation as well. I mean, a lot of people are adopting a meditation practice for mm. all of the so-called future benefits that it, it may yield, right? It's like, oh, well, I'll, I'll perform more optimally or yeah, I'll grow yeah. more gray matter. Same mindfulness, I'll... same thing. You know, I'll be a better stockbroker. Yeah, That's right. I'll lower trades. my cortisol levels. Yeah. And all of that stuff is, is true. Yeah. Um, but uh, to pursue a meditation or mindfulness practice for those goals, um, you know, loses, you lose the point. Mm. 
Yeah, absolutely. I got to give you a quote. It's just popped Please. up. We just, uh, for Love Serve Remember Foundation, just uh, did a film, and it's uh, it's been out in theaters and and so on, and it's online, um, and it's um, it's the story of a man named K.C. Tuari, who was uh, Krishnas and I and other uh, others uh, major mentor back in those day in India, in, in India, and uh, so he would go it's called the brilliant disguise because he was a regular man taught at school was a headmaster of a boys school had a family the whole nine yards the samadhi of casey tuari so samadhi Mm -hmm. is just loosely because it's a profound word uh you know deep absorption through meditation so he used to go into these states around Neem Karoli Baba and around just around us. I mean, in, in the film, I, I like had went on a, a little journey with my mother to India and he was with us. And he at one point said, you know, you can't leave your religion behind and just adopt, a, you know, an Eastern religion. You know, you can't just do that. You're Jewish. I said, yeah. And he said, well, you know, a prayer. Could you repeat a prayer in in Hebrew? And uh, my mother and I looked at each other. And as I say in the film, she wasn't a big uh, follower of. She was, you know, Jews that are more um, cultural, cultural and, Jews. Yeah, yeah, yeah not sure. not the religious Jews. Anyhow, we sang Enkelohenu. <laughs> which means there is nothing but God. This the only way. Enkelohenu. We went on. Yeah, yeah. boom. He's in samadhi. My mother, never seen anything like this. No pulse, no breath. And like a, a you know, like a stone. And I said, it'll be okay, because I was used to it by that time. I knew that eventually. And he came back down and all. So he, I had never seen anything like this. I met around Maharaji, there was two or three people that he would just look at them, bong, they were gone, and he'd say, what happened to them? You know, he'd have fun with us around it. But I had never seen anything like this in my life. And then at one point uh, in this film, he says, and this is loosely... uh, translated uh, meditation isn't about concentration meditation is not a business it's not a way to go from here to there meditation is part of your life meditation is a lifestyle and I thought it was yeah, so great mm. because we in the West have such an issue as you just said about how we f- we're going to do something and we're going to get something, you know, that's what we're based on. And making it a fabric of our life is really what it's about. We're living within an epistemological structure that sanctifies product yeah over process and it's built into kind of abrahamic thought i mean uh you know man was fashioned out of a ceramic figurine as a as matter and then animated through 
God's breath into his nostril. And, you know, that has followed us for, you know, millennia, this idea that we are somehow a thing, a product made of stuff and, um, and usually very dumb stuff. <laughs> um, and, uh, um, and I think, you know, the, the religions of the East have always seen the universe as process as emergent, as spontaneous, as mutually interdependent. So those of us in the West to really connect with presence, which is really process, it, it requires us to divorce ourselves, to cleave ourselves in many ways from sort of the cultural hegemony of this sanctification of endless like product. Like, what are you going to make of yourself? <laughs> Literally. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and um, so it's, uh, so yeah, it's, uh, you know, and then when you have a moment of Satori and, and you say, no, I'm just, uh, I'm just completely here now, impermanent, in constant flux, uh, well, it's, it's, it's a great relief to be honest, uh, cause yeah. you, you release, you release yourself from all of those expectations, you know, that society thrusts, uh, upon you. Yeah. Bob Dylan saved me by the way on that one <laughs> when I was 15 or whatever it was. Uh, so yes. I, I wanted to talk about uh, Neem Karoli Baba f hmm. for a moment. So, um, so obviously, you know, Ram Dass and, um, and Leary and, you know, everyone was, uh, experimenting with psychedelics and then, you know, realized that, oh, wait a minute, these guys in the East have been talking about this kind of experience for 2,500, 3,000 years or even farther back. And I think Leary, I, I got this from your, uh, I think from your podcast, but Leary actually tried to adapt the Tibetan Book of the Dead into a guidebook for psychedelics, which I, I thought well, was yeah. fascinating. Oh, that's a famous book, yeah, that Leary yeah. and Alpert and Metzner mm -hmm. put together. Um, yeah. That but, was, they were introduced by Aldous Huxley to the right. original yeah, Tibetan right. Book of the Dead. But then as you mentioned, as psychedelics, uh, as the effect of it wore off, um, you and Bhagavan Das and Ram, well, Richard at that juncture embarked on trips to India to find a potential guru. So what was that experience like? And, uh, and how did one, how did everyone connect with Neem Karoli Baba and what were some of the beliefs and belief structures that, that Karoli Baba held that were so, uh, enchanting? That's a big one. Yeah. Big. Big one. Take it in bite, bite. Yeah, maybe in <laughs> bites. First of all, he didn't expose, expose. He did expose the truth, but it was not through any kind of philosophy or anything except one thing. He'd point his finger and go, 
in Hindi, sub ek. There is only one. Christ, Hanuman, Buddha, Muhammad, one. There's a one. And then that was the f- very, very first thing that we heard from him in that moment that we first met him. It was only one. So that's the only uh, love, uh, as Ramdas said, well, this foundation is called. Love, serve, remember. And Ramdas would say, the only instructions I had from my guru, love everyone, serve everyone, and remember God, period. And mm. tell the truth. He added that one on the end. So, um, so yeah, the, it, it, um, the, how, and really we got there because of Ramdas. Now, he was introduced by Bhagavan Das. But it was Ramdas who Maharaji said, we called him Maharaji, for those of you who don't know, just it's a common name for a holy being. Babaji or Maharaji, they're all, which is good. You don't have to remember anybody's name. In fact, you don't have to remember, um, and Ma, all women are Ma's. It's so great, especially now. <laughs> Anyhow, we, uh, even Neem Karoli Baba said to us at one point, none of you would have gotten here except for Ramdas. And so, uh, yes, was there people who did get there who had not heard of Ramdas? Yes, I'm sure there were, but they were, there were f- many fewer of them. Ramdas, because of him going around and lecturing, and we bugged him. Now, some people, because he would say, I can't tell you who he is or, or what his name is. And w- so I wasn't going over there looking for a guru. I was interested in Eastern stuff before I met Ramdas. I'd heard, you know, I, through Allen Ginsberg. Mm. I love Al. I loved Alan. I love Alan now. And he brought chanting. And he's the first person I heard doing, you know, he'd have that crazy little harmonium and he'd be chanting yeah. Hare Krishna, you know, and on the east, lower east side. And, uh, and t- he was the one who said, marijuana is a good thing. It's a good, good medicine. That, my, oh, good, I, I trusted Alan, you know, this is at 14 years old, whatever. Uh, and I didn't actually find any till later because it wasn't ubiquitous in any way. <laughs> so yeah. anyhow, but we, um, we those there were those of us that said, okay, we can't go. And they stayed home, even though they knew of, about this being was there somewhere in India. And there were those of us that rummed us Please, I gotta know. I gotta go. <laughs> and yeah. those of us that did that, I mean, Krishnas, he finally, oh, this is a good story. Krishnas and uh, another friend, Ramesh Ramdas, who wrote uh, this great, uh, with Ramdas, uh, Being Ramdas, the memoir, just came out a couple of years ago. And, uh, and Danny Goleman, who also wrote a phenomenal book named uh, uh, Emotional Intelligence, which is required reading for most people. Mm-hmm. To this day, um, they said well, Ram, they bugged him really badly, and then finally he said, "All right, I'll, I'll you can write to this man in this town that's nearby where I stayed at the ashram when I first went." And they did. His name was K.K. Shaw, who became Ramdas's close, close Indian brother. For uh, he died literally a month after Ramdas, and he said, "I'm not staying." Hmm. without Ramdas, so that's how close they were. Anyhow, they wrote to him. He went to Maharaj. He said, look, this, some Ramdas's students have written you 
Maharaji, and they want to come see you. And he went, what? Who cares? What do I have to do with anybody? <laughs> he, and then KK went, and he pouted. KK had an exceptional relationship. He knew him since he was six years old, eight years old. And Maharaji popped him on the head and said, what's up? What, what's up? You know, what are you... <laughs> What are you moaning about? He said, well, these students have respectfully written to you and they want to come and so on. And they're Ramdas's. And he said, look, do whatever you want. So he wrote back to Krishnadas and said, in not so many words, well, uh, Maharaji is available to anybody at any time. And, uh, you know, he, he made it sound like uh, it was perfectly fine for them to come over, even though he wasn't getting, they weren't getting any kind of special invite. <laughs> so they did go not knowing that. They didn't find out till years later what Maharaji really said. What do I have to do with anything? Mm, Job, go. And so they went over. And, and in my case, he just said, write to me when I'm in India. And I wrote to him as soon as I did. Um, uh, Maharaja couldn't be frowned at that moment. And we actually met Ramdas and I for the first time in India after I had arrived. He'd been there four or five months and I maybe several. And we met at uh, Swami Muktananda's ashram right. near near uh, Mumbai. You you know right. who Swami Muktananda is, I think. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I had this uh, meeting with Ramdas and then he, boom, sent me up and that was it. So other people found it... Uh, at that point, because it became known Ramdas was in India and he'd be at the hotel and people would come over, Ramdas, where, you know, it'd be really helter skelter like that. And then doing a meditation course in Bodhgai where many people uh, met Ramdas and, and, uh, or knew about him and then went on with him. And many people knew of it because Ramdas used to hold these amazing um, summer retreats at his father's farm in New Hampshire. And we'd all get together. It was just yoga, chanting. It's in the movie. Uh, it's actually in the movie of Becoming Nobody a little bit, and which uh, there's a beautiful film that we have of that complete experience. So, uh, so people knew, and those who were a little bit more, shall we say, aggressively wanting to meet somebody like Ramdas described in his talks, they got over there. Yeah. I mean, these days, it's hard to separate these guru figures from their various peccadillos and sexual transgressions, etc. We we often hear about <clears throat> gurus who uh, whose behavior is not in alignment with their highest principles. Let's say um, they're not cooked. But, Those are not the guru is a shitty word because there's the coke guru. There's the cleaning lady guru. I mean, there's gurus everywhere. It has nothing to do with an actual being. That's there are beings that are called in India siddhas. They have mm -hmm. gone beyond me and you. They are no more, no longer polarized whatsoever. And, and the KK, our friend, used to say for every 10,000 saints that are gurus that are walking around India, there's, you know, um, you know like 10 siddhas, you know. So the, there is a huge difference between someone who's completely cooked and someone who's not. 
and the ones that are not act out in ways that uh, we are pretty used to here in America, especially, or in the West, right? It's such a common thing. And it's just um, uh, unfortunate in the way that how we relate with figures like this is a little askew. Uh, And uh, again, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, probably says it best because there have been Tibetan lamas recently that, that that has been the case as well. And he says, you know, just... It's your experience, not what someone says tells you to do or not to. It's your mm-hmm. inner experience. So it's trust for me. I and what I relate to people is intuitive trust is a huge thing, mm. huge. And to get there, you've got to do a little bit of practice to open up that door. Yeah. I mean, what do you think the utility of the siddha? is in terms of providing uh you know f- uh, some form of conveyance let's say from the feeling of separateness to the feeling of samadhi i mean w- w- what's the utility of a siddha in this well i mean i only knew well that's, i i knew of course maharaji mm-hmm. i knew anandamayima who's a great woman, uh, yeah. uh, exemplar of no more than me and you, <laughs> and uh, and some of the great Tibetans I have been fortunate uh, to meet. You see the potential of us as humans. I mean, I'll put it into the most uh, common Uh, grounded language we start to once you see this and uh, you can do you can no longer um, move in that polarized separated self in this world um, with with uh, without any kind of uh, Wisdom, the wisdom of, of being kind, compassionate, the wisdom of seeing your motivations, which is why mindfulness is such, you know, is an important practice. Absolutely. Seeing our motivations, you no longer can walk that walk anymore. Mm-hmm. So they actually instill this, you know, the ones that are cooked, completely cooked. They instill this by virtue of their own example. Mm. And then, then of course, you know, Ramdas used to talk about the miraculous things that Nimkaroli Baba did all the time, and he was caught by them. And when he came back to India the second time, he realized, wait, it's not about that. It's about love. It's about that unconditionality. It's about kindness. It's about compassion. It's about serving people. It's about feeding people getting to the point where you can tell the truth because you're not living in fear. So that is, uh, the they are exemplars of what we can be. And we don't mm-hmm. have to be, you know, completely enlightened where, yes, you know, now you're able to perform magic tricks. It's nothing about that. It's just about the truth of, uh, as Ramdas has said himself, When is it enough what you need? 
When is it enough what you want, of what you want? It's much more interesting to serve. I think, you know, in those moments where we feel that all of our needs are met, then love really becomes something given and not something taken. And we really need to access the present moment in order to grok that sensation. Because if you are always looking into the future with this mindset of if only and only if I achieve that or get this thing or add this thing to my pile, um, then, well, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be content. Um, but of course, you know, where that ends up. There's no end to that one. Yeah. That's, that's the old hedonic treadmill. So, um, so, you know, I've heard, Ram Das in various different lectures talk about bhakti yoga, talk about ashtanga yoga, and some of these obviously are somewhat interchangeable. But if there was a particular methodology, how would you, um, to Ram Das's teachings, how would you describe it? Hmm. Well, certainly bhakti yoga is is the uh, yoga of, of love. But you know what? The lineage, which comes from Neem Karoli Baba to Ram Das to others, you know, through all of us at one point or another. The interesting thing is, from the very get-go, we get to India. Somehow Ram Das finds out about a Vipassana medita- insight meditation course in Bodh Gaya. And I think you're familiar with that. Very much so, mm-hmm. because I know you work with Jack. Um, suddenly, there's a huge, uh, the influx of people, the huge influx of people, which is, you know, hundreds of people. It seemed huge at the time. But be at mm-hmm. the, we'd go to these courses. And Maharaji would say, Oh, he'd say in Hindi, you're going to, and in English you go, course? You want to do the course? It seemed like a way to get rid of us. Because he always seemed to be trying to get rid of us. You know, these young hippies hanging out. What the hell? You know? And more of yeah. them all the time. And, uh, and then we come back from the course. I remember one time we came back from the course and he's sitting outside a house that we were going to visit him at. And with uh, some Indian people. And, oh, you just came back from the court. This is all through a translator. And, yeah. He said, well, show, you, you know how to meditate now? He said, <laughs> and we go, yeah. He said, well, show me. And so we all sat up straight to meditate. Within 10 seconds, this high-pitched laugh that he had. Hey, hey, hey look, they know how to meditate. <laughs> but the truth, the truth was that we all seem to gravitate towards Buddhist um, teachings, all the way mm-hmm. from the Hinayana, the, the, where the insight meditation comes from, from Burma, all the way to Tibet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, to this day, Danny Goleman, who is, you know, 
esteemed writer and uh, is close to the Dalai Lama, right? Um, I know, you know, we all have taken teachings from different Tibetans over the years. Um, in fact, one of the miraculous things that happened that Maharaji did, knowing everything, he, I uh, had to go to uh, Delhi to get a, my passport renewed, Canadian, because I'm Canadian, and my former radio boss said, well, if you have any trouble with, at all, go to the Canadian High Commissioner, James George is his name. And I, so I came from, actually from Kosani, and I'm coming through, uh, I stopped by where, Kenchi, where Neem Karoli Baba was, and he, anyhow, we had this whole conversation, um, but he basically said, you just, uh, you just have darshan of a Tibetan Lama? I go, no, I don't know any, I never met a Tibetan in my entire life. You mean Munin, you know, this Buddhist meditation? He said, nay. Tibet Lama, he gave you darshan, he gave you teachings for half an hour. I go, no, Maharaji, I really, I don't know. Jow. <laughs> and off I went to Delhi to get my passport renewed. And I said to James George at one point, is it true that uh, Canada is letting in Tibetan refugees? Because I had heard this. He said, yeah, as a matter of fact, and he points, out of a room, a den, comes a retinue of monks with, with a lama named Kalu Rinpoche, one of the great lamas of the last century. I just, uh, you know, I, I plutzed, as they say in Yiddish. <laughs> I hit the floor. First of all, I was meeting this incredible lama and then knowing, holy shit, he knows that? This isn't some thought I had. This is something that was going to happen like three days later or a week later, three days later. And then they went to interview this Lama. Uh, there was a couple of uh, Canadian CBC guys. And they went in and they said, oh, come along. So I went in and they asked him stuff like about Christianity. And he said, I don't know anything about Christianity. <laughs> he was bored with them. He obviously didn't want to engage with them. And they said to me, well, why don't you ask him a question? As soon as they said that to me, he sat upright and lasered me like... Uh, I and then I spilled out stuff about meditation and and how I can meditate in the mountains, but now I'm in the city. I can't, you know, I can't handle it. And uh, and he gave me all these teachings for a half an hour. So from that point, and this happened to many of us. Um, we, I, I, uh, the retreats, for instance, that we have done when Ramdas started living in Maui, which was 2004, four or five. And then we started running retreats because we knew he couldn't go anywhere, so we organized them to be there a couple of times a year, these fairly large retreats. Every one of them, Jeff, had a Buddhist component to it. it I mean, Jack has been primary there, but Roshi Joan Halifax, Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein, you name it. And that has been primary for us because there is the lineage that is represented by us all, and certainly by Ramdas, is bhakti yoga and discriminating wisdom. It's mm. and, that, and and primarily from Buddhist thought, and that combination has, you know, well, we just came back from one two weeks ago or a week and a half ago. Same thing with Jack and Trudy and, uh, and Krishnadas and and a, and a bunch of other uh, incredible people. And it's that um, joining 
of these two traditions that I, I think is, uh, I think it's marvelous, marvelous, marvelous. Um, yeah, well, this kind of syncretism between, um, well, certainly between like Taoism and Buddhism that more or less birthed Zen. Um, I mean, you see these traditions that have, um, uh, share a common substrate and then they find the more kind of cultural elements or, you know, we, we begin to, um, disentangle them and re-entangle them. And, uh, and I think that that's, that's part of, mm. that's kind of baked into Buddhism is this notion that it's, there's no final word of God, you know, it's, it's evolving within the Sangha, right? Yeah. And that's what makes it so dynamic and wonderful. It's just that you and I right here in this conversation, we could have some, we could land on some moment of Satori that pushes the paradigm or the conversation forward or to the side or in, in mm. different ways. And I think that that's the fact that it's, an, uh, it's something that is alive is, um, Super important for yeah. sure, for sure. It has to be because, as we know, um, the byword is impermanence, and that <laughs> and it's not a bad word. It's a good word. You know, just think of you know uh, when you get ill, and maybe you know I don't mean devastating ill, but even a headache. You can sit with it and know it is not going to stay the same, no matter what. And it is so that imp so impermanence in this way, it, it fits in with the idea of, of being curious and, and seeing how things fit together. And and, you know, many people have different ways to get on the path and different introductions. And it takes them from one place to another. And there's constant change with it's, it's really, really important. Um, I would say, though, about uh, Bhakti can get a really um bad name in that well I'll give you an example Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche one of the great lamas translating the Tibetan Buddhisms that exists out there uh, these books are, are just extraordinary his books um, when we first met him which was with Ramdas we had just come back from India you know uh, the second time in the 70s and we would go down and see him, and he'd say, oh, Ramdas is here, and his light and love army. <laughs> <laughs> we were the light and lovers. Love. And, you know, he would jive us about, you know, the, uh, the Indian hippie, bhakti yoga-ish, you know, yoga-doing, you know, young people. And uh, so we had fun with that with him. And... Uh, and the truth was, we were there because we were really um, just absorbing this incredible wisdom and applying it and, and it merging it with the yoga of the heart. Mm -hmm. And I know, and Ramdas used to say something that I, uh, you know, definitely agree with. The, especially the Tibetan view of the truth, shall we say, is so crystalline and so, they call it Vajra, cutting through so much. It's, it's extraordinary. I mean, I've been captured by it. 
and and it it is easy to get captured by it mentally and then you do to me you do one of two there's two possibilities one is you are doing that famous thing of like taking all this beautiful information and avoiding anything in terms of your personal your 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 psychology your you know your habitual patterns your neurotic tendencies and doing the end run right spiritual bypass and the other thing is to just absolutely ignore uh, the heart process, which can be very difficult and painful, right? Because it brings up everything, all of our interrelationships. When we open our hearts, we say chanting, you know, going to a Krishna's concert, whatever, you know, it opens us up to stuff that is not sometimes pretty because it's a lot of emotional baggage is laying deep, deep recesses of our being. So uh, it can have that. And Ramdas used to make fun of them, uh, make fun of the Buddhists in that way, you know, just saying, you know, this is a, 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 a giant trap, a gigantic trap. And, and we'd have that dialogue with Jack and, you know, and others all the time. Yeah, well, the, the irony here is that there is a temptation the moment that you embark on the the path of liberation to crave not to crave <laughs> which yeah. is a clinging in and of itself um yes. so this is the so good this one is though the, that could be a you know maybe we'll give that one up at the end i don't know <laughs> right right but it is um uh because we're so conditioned to um, analyze everything rationally and empirically yeah uh, that it, you know it's it's um, very tantalizing to practice bhakti yoga uh, just for the intellectual intrigue of it you know um, or well, it gets you, or it, Buddhism you know yeah yeah well I mean that's the beauty of, of, of bhakti. So that's a difficult thing. I mean, we're actually going to do a, uh, well, we're doing this wonderful course with commune with you guys. <laughs> we haven't even said right. anything about it. Uh, right. That's a, a wonderful, med- well, we mentioned the meditation course with Ram Dass and friends that uh, Jeff will talk about in a minute, I'm sure. Uh, but uh, we're doing something around the yoga of the heart, a course. And, and mm. we're going to investigate with people. Um, just some of the promises and pitfalls, as he used to call it, uh, that come with that particular practice, because there certainly is. And um, that's why discriminating wisdom is extremely important ingredient. Mm. Yeah. I think there's like this fine line of delineation between faith which could be categorized as sort of belief in the absence of evidence and devotion, which is really more a kind of a trust in, in, in a way. And, um, and it, I, I've personally had sort of a tricky time, sort of like a minefield discriminating between those things because, mm. you know, I, I am, uh, empirically minded to some degree. I love medical science and I mm. love physiology and I love uh, environmental science and 
um, life sciences in general. Um, and I am interested in, in dissecting how things are and how things work. Um, yet at the same time, that can provide a great blockage mm -hmm. into what might be called intuitive wisdom. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, and, uh, and, and finding that delicate, that sensitive balance between the two of them. Absolutely. Well, well put, Jeff. I mean, that is, uh, especially for Westerners, especially mm, yeah. difficult. We are so attached to the belief of the power of our minds, you know, and that's really, uh, you asked earlier, yeah, well, so kind of what is the effect of a Neem Karoli Baba? He shattered that. I mean, mm. that's what happened. I mean, that is probably the biggest thing. He shattered our minds. We could no longer depend on that empirical rationalization of who we are in this world. That was gone. Even if we hadn't embodied the potential of that intuitive wisdom. But we were well on the path. You know, and it's been a, a, a lifetime here. In, ter in terms of when I look back of the progression of it, it's pretty interesting. And uh, um, thank God, that's all I got to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, love was such a central theme and central word to Ram Dass's mm. life and, and being. And I, I wonder if you could unpack how you've come to understand that word or that symbol, I suppose, mm. uh, because there's a lot of different ways to potentially understand it. Yeah. Well, it's, it's another, we have really wrecked so many words in the English language at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We talked about guru, you know, it's just, uh, like surrender. There's uh, when Ramdas first came back and he mm. started telling his story of being in India, meeting Maharaji and all, and practicing yoga. He would say, "Well, I know there's a few things here that are really tough for me to even mention: guru, surrender, love." <laughs> it's yeah. really oh my God! Look what's happened, you know. Um, well, I think the word, uh, we're used to conditional love, transactional love. I mean, that's, right. you know, maybe, you know, like uh, when I was telling you the story of first meeting Ram Dass at that time in Montreal, uh, and he created an unconditional zone, and I, would, I thought to myself later, well, I ex potentially experienced that with my mother, with a mother, right, that is feeding you. There's an unconditionality and caring for you as a baby. But I couldn't re really remember that. And uh, this was the first, it quickly went downhill for me after that. When this was the first moment, uh, you know, uh, in my, when I met him, what, early 20s, whatever. This was a moment that was so profound that, wow, there's actually a field here a vibrational field here that I feel the unconditionality mm. of, of this love. 
And I think so to properly define love is to include the word unconditional and, uh, and being love. And this was a big thing for Ramdas, being love, not, you're not doing anything. You're not, you know, we, and we experienced that with Neem Karoli Baba. You knew that there wasn't someone deciding to throw an apple to a person as an expression of love or grace or whatever. It was just happening. We knew that. So we had that. We had something to look to in, in relation to read. I, I'm saying this now. Of course, I wasn't thinking this then to redefining what love really means. You know, yeah. And you know who's gone along? Uh, the, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, has done so much for, for us. My, my only religion is kindness, he would say. Right. Right. We have to develop compassionate mothers. We, it's all about women who come up and are having children, and they have a compassion the way my mother, speaking uh, His Holiness, uh, had this giant compassion. He said, that's why I am who I am now. It was literally passed on. That's what we, uh, our hope for the future is compassionate mothers and then mm. children and then from generation to generation. That is our hope for the future. So I think, you know, redefining love, faith, for instance, you know, Sharon Salisbury has a great, wise faith. You know, it's a book right. called Faith, but it's really wise faith. And that's really, so I think that, again, that's discriminating wisdom with love. Love, at least in the West, gets lumped in to the taxonomy of, of emotions. You know, so it's like, okay, well, I, there's some sort of biochemical, uh, biochemically produced sensation in me arising and now it's subsiding and there it goes, (laughs) you know, um, but, um, you know, when I hear Ram Dass talk about love, it's, um, it's, it's awareness beyond the ego, essentially. It's, um, it's a state of being really that you align with or that you visit it doesn't really visit you um uh, it's i suppose kind of like colorado in that sense although you don't have to get on an airplane um (laughs) that it's already it's all always in you and i I think you know the, the words that you brought up like unconditional when you think of like meta for example the bringing forth of loving kindness unconditionally Mm. or karuna the identification of someone else's suffering as your own or mudita the experience of joy only for somebody else's joy i mean how wonderful is that you know Mm -hmm. so these are the the signatures of love you know in this day and age i often think of um providing someone with my absolute undivided attention is an act of love. Mm. And um, particularly in like, you know, the era of distraction that we're, we're living in. And that's not disconnected from upeka, like this idea of equanimity, which often kind of sort of gets categorized as, you know, passivity or conciliation or whatever, but not, uh, that's not, 
I think that's an improper understanding of it. Mm. I mean, for me, it's bringing your full self, your full-throated, energetic, passionate self to this moment with you, Raghu, right here, right now, without any attachment to the result of what this might be. (laughs) I'm just here with you. And if we could all just do that for each other, my God, you know, we would bend the arc. Unfortunately, anti-ethical to our, the way we grew up and, and, and the installation of the belief systems in, in the empirical ness of it all. So it makes it a little bit, uh, which is again, got to do practice to create a spaciousness that allows you to see the the uh, the reality of, of how we are clinging. Uh, Joseph Goldstein, who, by the way, anybody who hasn't heard of Joseph, like get yeah, on with has to because, get hip immediately. Oh my God, yeah. And he wrote a book called Mindfulness, which is just phenomenal. But he was with when he was with us uh, in Maui one year. He was with a young person who had just gotten on the path who was assigned to drive him around. And that person said, you know, you've been doing this for a long time. You've been on the path. Can you just give me one, just one, what's your major piece of advice, okay, that you could give me? And he turned to him and he went, stop clinging. Hmm. And you see how everything is that. And if, uh, and, and clinging is one thing, but resisting and pushing away is part of clinging because you're clinging to to be in a uh, a more comfortable moment, for instance. And we have such a hard time with that, and we have such a hard time with uh, discomfort and making friends with discomfort. I mean, it's just. Uh, just going to India, and I did everything, you know, um, me, as Jack would say, it's okay to be human. And I found the places that were going to have the best food and the most comfortable accommodations. In India, that's not really possible all the time, or if any of, you know, barely much of the time. And, you know, and I just watched how I do that. And we are all doing that. And that's where mindfulness comes in. Because you can get some and meditation to create enough space, as I said before, for us to be able to walk more lightly around these day-to-day life issues. Yeah. I mean, parenthood is a place where clinging uh, (laughs) comes up you know, on the regular. And I, I mentioned to you before we started that my eldest... Uh, daughter has re- relocated some six thousand miles away um, mm-hmm. from me, anyways, to in, in Paris, and that process of letting go, of of not clinging, um, you know, I could intellectually think through it, but the moment that I had to take her to the air to the airport and say that, you know, this is it after 18 years of raising you, you're not sleeping at home tonight or mm. tomorrow night or the mm. next night, you know, or whatever. And I don't want to dramatize it too much because she'll be back next week for Christmas. But <laughs> nevertheless, you know, um, you know, I, mm. I, you know, I, it, it spurred on some meditation around clinging and, mm. you know, uh, Nirvana 
it literally translates as as blowing out right mm. so um so if you think of like your breath the most certain way to die is to cling to your breath right you know the only way it comes back to you is if you don't cling to it you just have to you have to let it go mm. and uh i'm i'm praying the same is true with daughters <laughs> but uh, <laughs> But these are these are lessons that you know mm. we hopefully pick up. Um, we yeah. hopefully pick up along the way. Yeah, yeah, we will. We do. It's a matter of a little bit of trust in that part of us that is completely hooked into the universal mind. Period. Yeah, it's interesting that you say the word trust. I, I interviewed um, Louis Schwartzberg. Uh, a couple oh, of weeks yeah, ago, yeah, I'm I sure know. if you know yeah, Louis. He's yeah. Great. yeah, yeah, amazing uh, cinematographer and director. Yeah, yeah. He's made some beautiful films. He has a beautiful film with Jack in it right now called Gratitude Revealed. Yes, yes, I know um, and uh, he talked a lot about nature and trust hmm. and how much it, it, within the parentheses or brackets of faith. Because I was trying to get at with him, like, what does faith actually mean for you? And he's actually said, well, I spend so much time with nature and that part of my faith in nature is trust, is I'm going to set up this camera on a year-long time lapse and watch this flower, you know, blossom and expand. And I'm going to spend basically my entire year for six seconds of, of documentary film, mm. I have to have a lot of trust in the foundational intelligence of nature. And I just have to surrender myself to that. Mm. And I thought that yeah, was beautiful. just like amazingly beautiful. beautiful. <laughs> and, mm. um, and it takes faith out of this kind of like, Oh, I believe in this, uh, you know, bearded yet invisible creator of the universe that has some moral abacus on some mountaintop, like monitoring my sexual transgressions or whatever. <laughs> yeah, the Abra you know, the Abrahamic kind of faith. Yeah. And, and this is a very different form um, of faith, much more as surrender and trust. So that yeah. helped me. It helped yeah. me. Anyway. Oh, that's great. That's great. Oh, I should. Um, so we got this project coming. Yes. Up. Yes. And I'm, uh, so it's, uh, I believe, um, well, just to, you know, timestamp our conversation today, we're talking in the middle of December at the end of 2022, because I'm sure people will be listening and watching this way into the future, but this is where we are right here, right yes. now anyways. And in about a month's time, so middle of January, January 16th, I believe, yeah. um, 2023 will be the launch of a, a great collaboration that we're working on together to bring uh, meditation practice to as many people as will have it, and uh, <laughs> and hopefully more. Um, it's certainly celebrating a lot of uh, Ram Dass's work, but uh, as you mentioned, some other friends and luminaries uh, yeah, within that Jack mix. and Sharon and Joseph and 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 on. You know, we were talking about music before. And so what uh, this wonderful collaboration is uh, coming to fruition with both visual and music as part of it. So uh, we provided these wonderful meditations from the Be Here Now Network and Jeff and Commune got uh, some beautiful visuals and also 
very importantly, the way that the meditations ride on top of some just wonderful ambient music. Because um, I was checking it out the other day, and you know, it it sets you back in your chair in a more relaxed fashion right away. You don't have to think, okay, I better sit up and do this. You know, it's funny how music just gets relax. You'll be okay. You know, and uh, so this um, you know uh, combination, I think, is very powerful, Jeff. And I think people are going to. I mean, it's unique. This is all, uh, even though the meditations, uh, you know, I've been on podcasts that I've done and and just stuff from Ramdas. Uh, at the same time, having this combination, as I said, is really uh, quite wonderful. I'm, I'm really happy that we're doing this. I think it's going to be of great benefit because it just does make it easier to be with the uh, meditations that are being guided by the various teachers. Hmm. Well, yeah, I'm so glad that you, uh, that you like it because obviously, um, you've, uh, you've been around the block, uh, as far as meditation programs go. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously we're both, uh, friends with, with Mark Watts and Alan, Alan Watts has said we're both yeah. admirers of Alan and he, he always framed meditation in a way that, that I really loved. He said, you know, you can often think of meditation as this sort of dismal chore. Um, but if you can reframe it as just grooving with the present, just groove with the present <laughs> and feel just yeah. like no pressure involved. All you, you know, yep. it's such a gift just for, you know, 15, 20 minutes of your day just to groove with the now, you know? That's, it's as simple as that. It doesn't have to be, um, you know, it doesn't have to have all this other kind of... Uh, Should have, would have, could have. Yeah, artifice on top of that. it. Yeah. yeah <laughs> and yeah. and then you know, the benefits will be self-evident, you know. Um, yes, you know, great. It, it can relieve you from stress and anxiety. Uh, it can um, increase your heart rate variability. It can uh, certainly be good for your immune system. In fact... Uh, dropping your cortisol levels will help you produce more neutrophils, uh, my <laughs> favorite little innate immune system molecule. Um, and we could go on and on about the development of additional uh, gray matter in the brain and, and all of these. But these are, again, are, are sort of happy byproducts um, of just being in process. And uh, mm. I really think that this, this program is going to... Um, it's really going to touch a, a lot of people yeah. and for a very, very long time. So I yeah, couldn't be yeah. more thrilled than to. Yeah. And, it, you know, and it's as you just as you were just describing, it made me think it's just great to sit down and hang out in a space that is not your, your, your you know, I'm OK, I got to get up. I got to brush my teeth. I go to the bathroom. I got to have coffee. And then next, you know, the movie of me is what we call Krishna's called the movie. <laughs> The yeah. movie of me, it's, a, uh, it's, it's, it allows you to cut through that space, which basically um, is the unending clinging space. Mm -hmm. And if you just have a few moments, yeah, you're going to go off into thoughts and yeah, and you're going to come back as Sharon Salzberg says, the beauty of us as humans, you can always go back. You can always return 
to whatever your focus may be, breath, mantra, whatever it may be. And uh, to, to allow oneself to be in that space, even just for, if it ends up just being a few minutes, is refreshing. Incredibly refreshing. Yeah, that should actually, be it. Get refreshed. That should be it. You know, <laughs> well, you know, there's actual clinical research, not to always bring it back to, uh, you know, double blind placebo controlled uh, cl- uh, clinical trials. <laughs> but one of the leading indicators for self reported well being or happiness is the yoking between your thoughts and your actions or your intentions and what you're actually doing. So, so much of the time, if you think about it just in one's own personal experience, we're doing something and we're thinking about something else. Well, it turns out that a wandering mind is a patently unhappy mind. And so even if you just take five, 10, 15 minutes in a day and really try to just align your thoughts with your actions, knowing that you will wander off. But um, the happiest people are the people that can always continually come back. And it's uh, in, in some ways, you know, coming back to your breath or coming back to your focus or whatever your particular drishti is or your mantra or your malas or whatever you're using. Mm. And there is a great parallel there of always coming back around your own personal journey because I know that I'm always coming back to the goal of trying to align my works and actions in the world with my highest spiritual principles. Mm. And I fall off that more Mm. times than anyone could count in a particular day. Mm -hmm. But you keep coming back. Yeah. You keep coming back. And that's a meditation is an incredible training um, in that regard. So Mayor Baba said when you you fall down and you splash in the mud, you get up and you wipe (laughs) yourself off and keep going. And that's, right. you know, that's the beauty of us as humans. So, so seven, great to hang yeah, here seven with times, you. Seven times down, eight times up. Yeah. That is life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, man. I'm so, uh, so grateful to, uh, to get to know you. I'll be in Ojai in uh, 10 days. So oh. maybe I'll knock, knock if you're there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Let me know. Great to be here, Jeff. All right. And, and really happy for this collaboration as well. Me too. All right. Peace. Peace. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Raghu Marcus. And be sure to check out the Be Here Now Network at BeHereNowNetwork.com, which supports today's spiritual seekers through podcasts, courses, and live events. And of course, if you're interested in meditations and Dharma talks, well, you can take Ram Dass's 10-day course titled Pause, Breathe, Be Here Now by going to OneCommune.com slash BeHereNow. And if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. 
If you're a regular listener, you know how much effort we put into the show's creation, and we really do our best to keep sponsors to a minimum. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. You can check it out for 14 days for free at onecommune.com slash trial. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime with questions, suggestions, criticism of the constructive variety at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week, including Jake Lau, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Ruby Foster, Emma Fret, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. Okay, that's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you.